the Bible, contains 66 books that are often painfully honest. As you compare the Bible to other world religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, even ones that seek to distort Christianity, like Mormonism. Their books contain stories like the Bible, yet seem to be cleaned up, whitewashed. Stories that contain heroes that are blemishless, praising even their evil deeds. The Bible, though, presents heroes like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and David. Heroes that we learn about in Sunday school, venerate in our storytelling. Heroes that seem almost perfect, yet have very glaring flaws. Consider Abraham, who was so quick to pimp his wife out to Pharaoh. Or Jacob, who was a liar and a cheat, just like his father. Or consider Moses, who was a murderer. David we know well, and his sin with Bathsheba, and his attempt to cover up his sin has Uriah murdered. I was struck this week as Solomon reflected on his father's life, knowing full well that his mother and his father's relationship was contrary to God's word. These men, heroes, and as we consider their life, flawed, broken, and sinful. Well, what are we to make of these heroes? What, what are we to do with them? Are we just to throw them away? How often the Bible, even through what we heard in the Scripture reading today, an exhortation, to consider the great cloud of witnesses. What is he referring to? The author of Hebrews referring to these men and their faith and their faithfulness and, and their righteousness. What? These men were flawed. These men were broken. These men were messed up. Why does the Bible and the narrators, why does the Holy Spirit give us stories of flawed men and flawed women who have crisis of faith again and again? Abraham doesn't do that with his wife once, but twice. The sin of these men seems so great, yet God, as we will see, time and time again in the story of the Bible uses broken men and broken women to advance His purpose, to advance His will and His glory. In other words, God is not done with sinners. Well, this is the great story of the Bible, is it not? That God does not abandon His creation in their sin, but promises to redeem it, promises to restore it, promises to forgive, have mercy upon it. This is what we learn. And, and so when we come to a passage like we will this morning in 1 Samuel 27, and we see David doing some things David should not have been doing. We see David in the midst of a crisis of faith. We, we shouldn't just sort of rip it out of the Bible. But see, as Paul tells us, that these stories have been given for our instruction, for our edification, for our teaching. That when we face crises of faith, when we face the temptation to turn inward, to, to despair and discouragement, that we can learn from these lessons. That we might go the right way 
rather than the wrong. Well, friend, if you're joining us this morning, we've been considering over the last few weeks, months rather, uh, the, the, the book of 1 Samuel, the story of 1 Samuel. And over the last few weeks, we have really been in the, in the story of David. We've learned about Samuel, we've learned about Saul, and, and over the last few weeks we've considered this great exile that David has been on. He's gone from the mountaintops in chapter 17 where he defeats the, the great Goliath down to the valleys where he's hidden in caves, relegating himself as a crazy man in order to escape the, the wicked and ruthless attacks of King Saul. David has gone from the greatest days of his life to the worst days. From what we considered last week, when David spared Saul, where David was demonstrated his faithfulness and righteousness, where he has been driven by the Lord to the dark night of the soul. These are the darkest days in the life of David. And we've considered how through these times, through this difficulty and discouragement, through this exile, that God was preparing David to be the king that he had anointed him to be. A king after his own heart. A king who would, who would be faithful. A king who would be righteous. A king that God's people needed. But more than that, as we'll see today, that David pointed to a king greater than himself. A king we all needed. A king who never would have a crisis of faith. A king who would never doubt and become discouraged. But a king who would endure. Not only for himself, but for us. And friends, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel, if you haven't already. 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. Page 249. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. So David rose and went over, he and six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the king of Maok, king of Gath. David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Abel's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistine was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels and the garments, and come back to Achish. Then Achish asked him, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jehiramalites, against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell, us, tell about us and say, David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. What is the point of this story? What are we to learn from this? Even the greatest men and women of faith lose hope. Even the greatest men and women of faith lose 
hope. Even a man who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart lose hope. Therefore, we must guard our hearts against losing faith in the Lord. So the purpose of our time this morning is to to really find encouragement um, to guard ourselves from the temptation to run from trial rather than trusting the Lord in our trial. You and I, like David, are tempted to run from our trials. To doubt God's goodness and to doubt God's will. To run from them rather than trusting the Lord in them. To trust God's kindness in them and goodness in them. And so there's really three ways we see in the text I I want to just highlight. Sort of an opposite of what David has done. So so we're going to consider David's negative things that he's done and then we'll consider the positive, what, what David should have done. Just sort of thinking about the rest of God's word. Number one, we see in the text, don't turn inward, but upward to the Lord. In other words, David, in the midst of trial, doesn't turn to the Lord, but turns inward. Look with me at verse one. Then David said in his heart. Literally there in the text, it means that David said to his heart, David was having a conversation with himself. He's like most of us who maybe in the midst of difficulty talk to ourselves. We have a little conversation. We just go on and on throughout the day talking to ourselves, maybe trying to encourage ourselves, maybe further discouraging ourselves. Nonetheless, we're told that David has this frank conversation with himself. Conversation about his deplorable situation. He highlights how bad things have gotten. He is sick and tired of running. He has been isolated from his homeland. He has lived in caves, in the wilderness. He's tired. He's done. He just wants to go home. He just wants it to end. When will this end, is David's cry. This is the conversation that David has. And and as you read, excuse me, as you heard me read, David had this conversation as as the narrator told us about David's plans. What is David not doing? Sometimes that's a question you need to ask yourself in the text. What is he not doing? We're told what he did, but what doesn't he do? Who, rather, was absent from the conversation? David's having this conversation, but there appears to be someone absent from the conversation who in times past in 1 Samuel has been present in conversation. When David had opportunity to go down and to confront Saul before, when David had opportunity to go and and annihilate a people group, he never did anything before he had a conversation with somebody, and it wasn't himself. Throughout the story so far, every time David was faced with a, a sort of a, a crossroad, a, a which way should I go situation and scenario, David had a conversation not with himself, but with the Lord. Time and time again, we've seen that David has sought the Lord. He's, he said, hey, bring the ephod down so that we can figure out, should I do this or what I should do? Yet here, David, in the crisis of faith, turns inward. He, like Saul, seeks his own wisdom rather than the Lord. And David's wish comes true. David's wish comes true. He, in the midst of his sinful rebellion against God, finds relief from his enemy. But it will come at a cost for him. While he'll find relief from one enemy, he will join another enemy. David ran from his problems, but but this didn't mean that David's problems just went away. And brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us this morning that you can run from your problems, but the problem is, is the problems follow you. 
like his great-grandmother before him, great-great-great-grandmother before him, Naomi, thought she could run from her problems. But David's grandmother, Ruth, reminded her that she can't. And that's a reminder to us this morning that we cannot run from our problems. And so let's take just a quick look, a close look, at what David does. And find ourselves, I hope, seeing that we do the same. Look at the conversation in verses one, in verse one, that David has with himself. You'll note four things here. First, despair. First, despair. I'm going to die, David says. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. It's despair. It's given up. I'm going to die. He's going to get me. One day he'll get me. Oh, he's tried. Uh, he's tried countless times. But, but David has given, off, given up hope, hasn't he? I, I'm going to die. He's going to get me. One day that spear is, is, going, to, is going to get me. I'm done. He'll win. He despairs. Secondly, you'll notice he, he doubts. There's nothing better for me than I should escape. There's nothing for me here. I'm done. There's nothing. He, he despairs and he doubts the promises of God. And he drifts into pride. Notice thirdly the pride that David has. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. David has slipped into pride. His despair and doubt has driven him to the sin of pride. I'm in control of my fate. That's what he's saying. I've got, I've got this, this all figured out. David's foolishness is revealed in his plan. If I do this, then this will happen. David's will, David's plan, David's purposes uh, trump the Lord's. They are bigger than the Lord's. They're greater than the Lord's. I will save myself. I will escape from the hand of Saul by obeying myself rather than the Lord. He's doubting the promises of God. More than that, the narrator heightens the problem. This time, David doesn't just go by himself down to Gath, as he had done before. This time, he takes his whole family with him, as well as all of his men. We're told that 600 of his men and their family, a sizable crowd, perhaps 2,000, have now gathered together. And we're told in the story that David goes to Achish, the king of Gath. David goes to the enemy. He doesn't go to just anyone here. He goes to the enemy of Israel, the one whom, whom he has been fighting. And he goes to the very town of his old buddy Goliath and thinks things were going to go well for him. Just like before, he travels to the city of Gath. And there he seeks to, to set up. In verses 5-7, through seven, seven, we're told that, that David is given land in the country town of Ziklag. Of course, the size of his crowd would have been a little too large for them to be in that small little city of Gath, and so they want to spread out a little bit, have some freedom to roam around, do their thing. And as you read that text and you think about what David is doing, he's not just pitching his tent just anywhere. David is setting up, he is saying, you know what, let's just settle down here, guys. We're going to be here a while. David's has given up hope. David's done with Israel. He's done. Throughout this time, the whole language that David presents here is this language of like, I'm done. I'm not going to be the king. I'm not going to follow God. I'm done. I'm done with all of this. I would rather have temporal joy and freedom and pleasure than seek the Lord. Where there's trial and difficulty and discouragement. And brothers and sisters, I know you've been there. And I know that you, like me, have thought, you know what? The enemy, the enemy would leave me alone if I would just stop following Jesus. 
he would just leave me alone. The, the life would just get easier. Things would just, I mean, ever since I followed Jesus, things just seemed to get worse rather than better. And so we think to ourselves, Here, here's what I'll do. I'll just get away from God and his people. I'll get away from all of this religious stuff and the enemy will just leave me alone. I can settle down. I can enjoy life. I can enjoy my family. I can enjoy the, the countryside of Ziklag. And I can go out and make raids against these other people and I'll have victory because I'm strong. I know what I'm doing. I, I'm, a, I'm a warrior. I killed Goliath. I'm great. I've had great victory. And all I will go out and do all these things and life will be good. And that's exactly God in His grace gave David a good life. He had it made. He had it made. He had free land. He could settle down. David had lost hope in the promises of God. He was unwilling to count the cost of what it meant to be the king of Israel. He was unwilling. He has this crisis of faith. By God's grace, brothers and sisters, what we need is to hope in the promises of God. David here offers us an example of what not to do when in the midst of the crisis, in the midst of trial. We must guard our hearts by hoping in the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, that means that you need to know the promises of God. The problem with David in this text is that the promises of God, that he would be king over Israel, is far from his mind. But what is settled in his heart, what is settled in his mind, is temporal blessings rather than eternal. Brothers and sisters, in order to meditate on the promises of God, we must know the promises of God. We must open our Bibles and read them. So what promises has God made? There's a few. First, God promised forgiveness. In Psalm 103 and verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. That's a promise. And when the enemy comes knocking every morning and says, hey, you remember, remember that sin that you committed yesterday? Oh, yeah, yeah, you thought sleep would have got rid of it. You remember that rebellious thing you did? It's a promise of forgiveness. A promise that your sin doesn't get just swept under the rug. God does not sweep your sin under the rug so that it will come crawling back out some, some, some day in the future. No, no, no. It says that he has, he has put it as far as the east. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. It's not in his sight. That means that God does not see you based on your personal performance today or yesterday or any other day. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, he has promised forgiveness. That means you're forgiven. Yesterday, today, and forever. That doesn't change. It's a promise. The Bible tells us that God has promised deliverance from the slavery of sin. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, we were buried therefore with Him in baptism into His death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's a promise. He goes on, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The promise that God makes to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the promise of forgiveness and the promise of deliverance. That's a promise. When the nagging sin of addiction continues in your soul, when you seem that you can't get freedom from your sin, there is a promise that God makes. Another promise is a promise of mercy. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, the author of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God has promised mercy. That He would have mercy on you. In the midst of trial, the enemy tempts us to doubt the countless thousands of promises that God has made. The story of the Bible is the story of promises made and promises kept in Jesus Christ. 
It is these promises that guide us, secure us. They anchor us in the midst of trial and difficulty. When the waves are crashing against your soul, the waves of despair and discouragement, it is the promises of God that anchor you, that keep you. Notice what I did not say. That it's you. That it's your faithfulness. Your personal performance. That's why I love that hymn we sing. He will hold me fast. That's what we believe. That's a promise. That's a promise based on Jesus' words to his disciples. I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. I don't care how bad you've been today. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to let you go. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, we must not turn inward and have these anti-gospel conversations with ourselves. But we must turn upward to the Lord and trust His promises. David turned to himself, to his own plans. He sought relief when the Lord was unwilling to give relief. Brothers and sisters, the Bible does not promise relief. The Bible does not promise relief. But He promises deliverance in eternity. The promise and hope that every, every tear will be wiped away in eternity. Let us turn to the Lord and hope in His perfect promises. Uh, let the light of God's promises shine in our hearts. Let Him guide us in the midst of darkness and difficulty. This is where our faith must rest. Secondly, we see in this text, second way that we are to guard our hearts from losing faith. Verses 8-12, through 12, don't turn to deceit, but delight in the Lord. Don't turn to deceit, but delight in the Lord. Frankly, the text presents us with a very crafty and cunning liar. David is a liar. This sin in David's life will only grow. The deception we see here has been the deception we saw before when he acted like a crazy man. Here we see him deceiving and lying. This will be true of him for much of his life until Nathan the prophet exposes him in the greatest lie that David will ever tell. Deceit is the sin that so often we slide into in the midst of trial. We're told in the text that David begins to make raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. These were, as the narrator tells us, people that lived in the land of Canaan. These were neighbors to the Philistines. Not necessarily friends of the Philistines, but definitely neighbors. And so David, we are told, begins to go out and make raids on them, killing the women and children uh, men, women, and children, annihilating everyone in these villages and taking the, the bounty from his raids. David thinks that if Achish gets word of his activities, that somehow it will threaten his good life now that he has, this peace that he has, this, this good countryside living, you know, set up in the mountains, everything's great. Uh, man, retirement's good. That somehow it's going to upset Achish, and so we're told, look at verse 10, when Achish would come to him and ask him, hey, where, where have you been today? What you been up to, David? Of course, this would have been natural. Achish was the leader. He wanted to, you know, make sure that his vassal wasn't out doing anything wrong, perhaps making raids. Maybe perhaps Achish here doesn't trust David. There's a sense in which David, David's reputation, of course, as we'll see in chapter 29, is well known in Philistia. He's the, the killer of ten thousands. He's the, he's the great warrior king, king in Israel. Achish, Achish wants to know, has David changed? Or is he the same warrior that
that he has proven to be. We're told in the text that David would say to, to Achish, well, I've been out against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jehelmites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. The text makes clear that David deceives Achish by telling him that he has not been attacking the neighbors of Philistia, but the enemies of Philistia, the Israelites. That David has actually been out attacking his own kinsmen and those who are friends with them. Remember, the Kenites were the ones that Saul spared because the Kenites were the ones who were, were friendly when the Israelites first came into the land of Cana. What are we to make of this? David here is amassing quite a sizable stockpile for himself. He has made raids upon many villages, and he doesn't want to know anything. David here has learned his lesson. That lesson that he learned from Doeg, the Edomite. Remember, Doeg was the one who ratted David out when he was there with the priests at Nob. He's learned his lesson. He's not going to let anybody live and tell. David is deceitful. He thinks that this deceit will bring him the kind of relief that he wants. He's lying to himself and to others around him. And it's so fascinating. I, I love studying the life of David because we have, as I said a few weeks ago, the commentary on David's life, the sort of theological reflection, the, the divine reflection on the life of David. And consider this. Psalm 119 and verse 29, David says, Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. Or his son would write later in Proverbs 12, 22, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Well, in verse 12, we are told exactly what David desired, and that was to be a servant of Achish. Notice what happens here. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Literally there, the text is that he shall eternal. He shall be my eternal servant. He shall forever be my servant. He has deserted to the enemy and subjugated himself and relegated himself a slave of a foreign king. And he thinks that this deceit will bring him the relief that he desperately desires. But brothers and sisters, the point we must take from this is that we must learn to delight in the Lord, not in our circumstances. Delight in the Lord, not in our circumstances. That's what we do. We, we take... Our circumstances, we interpret them as our position with God. Things are well. Things are going good. Life's good and going great. There's money in the bank. Car's working well. The you know, kids are not acting crazy. My wife's behaving. Whatever it is, we think that when life is good, we must then be good with God. And when life is bad, when, things, when the health is, is not there... We must have done something. There must be something that we've angered God. We've upset Him. Friends, do you understand this is what Hinduism teaches? Buddhism? you understand this is what other world religions teach the divine is like? That, that if you appease Him, that He will bless you. And if you anger Him, He will smite you. Is that your relationship with God? That your circumstances dictate your delight in Him? Paul, the Apostle Paul, had challenging circumstances. Circumstances that are far worse than anything we can even imagine. Not only was he beaten, lied about, even Christians gossiped about him. 
Even Christians lied and and spread vile lies against him. And in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, Paul found delight not in his circumstances, but in in God's presence. He, He writes this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We just wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Notice in the midst of that what he says. But, but, that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. See, David, or excuse me, see, uh, the Apostle Paul did not take his circumstances and interpret them as his relationship with the Lord, but rather sought to find the Lord's strength in the midst of difficulty. And David would do the same. Not here. No, he would learn this is not the way. This is not the way. But he would learn the right way. He would learn the Lord's way. And so he would write in Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when He delights in His way. David had sought delight apart from the Lord, but he had learned that true delight comes from depending on the Lord, even in the midst of darkness. We might find that deception, deceiving ourselves, deceiving those around us, will grant us the freedom from our trials. But as David learned, they only drive us deeper into them. David is now, as we'll see in just a moment, going to march out against his very own people. The people that God had called him to lead, he is now on the other side. David has crossed the line, if there ever was one. He has crossed the line. David is now going to fight against his own people, God's people. David is going to go against the army of the, of, of the Lord. The one whom he said, who are you, Goliath, to defy the armies of the living God? David himself will go and defy Friends, we learn lastly in verses 1 and 2 that we are not to turn to another salvation but to preach the gospel to ourselves. What is the remedy to this problem? What's the gospel? First, we want to see in verses 1 through 2 that David turned to another salvation. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me into the army. In other words, understand, you are going to go fight against your brothers and your sisters. Understand, you are going to be on my side. Understand what your, your job is to do. You are to perform at the level that you have performed when you were on the other side. As a mercenary, to me, you are to fight. And notice what David says in verse 2. Very well. Okay, I agree. I'll do it. I will fight against my kindred. I will turn on God. Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David here turns to another for salvation. He's proven himself a worthy and loyal servant to King Achish. Now it will be time to prove himself. To prove the extent of his loyalty. The true test will be his willingness to fight against his own people. But by God's grace, we'll learn in chapter 29 that he will not do so. Not because of David's own resistance, but because God intervenes. The Philistines, you'll find, as we'll consider in a couple of weeks, they're unwilling to go to battle with their former opponent. Uh, they smell... Something is off. David, what are you doing over here? David trusts in his own strength and in his own wisdom rather than the Lord. He is pridefully confident in his own abilities. As we see in the text, he's saying, man, I got this. Yeah, you're going to see how awesome I am. 
You're going to see. You're going to see how great I am and how great a warrior I can be. He sees his plan. And he joyfully says, it's all working out. It's all good. My plan. Have you ever been there? Where it seems your plans just seem to be clicking in place? Man, things are just working out. Here's what we do. We interpret success as blessing from God. Just because things are working out doesn't mean it's from the Lord. Just because you seem to have relief in this world doesn't mean it's from the Lord. That's a warning to us this morning. That God and His kindness, and as we heard in the scripture reading, in His discipline, will hand us over to our sin so that we can find that only the true freedom that we seek comes to the Lord. David has turned to another for salvation. And what we need to do is to not preach another gospel, another means to salvation in the midst of trial, but preach the gospel to ourselves. Now what does that mean? That means to you need to remind yourself of the gospel. Now you might think this morning, now I thought the gospel was for sinners. I thought the gospel was for lost people. I thought that was only something I needed when I got saved. Now that's nowhere do you find the, the Bible ever talking that way. The gospel is for sinners. Sinners like you and like me. The Bible tells us that the gospel must be preached not only to, to the lost, but to the saved. What we need is to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves week in and week out. This is what the psalmist does in Psalm 42. This invites you really quickly as we, we, we move through this final point. Turn to Psalm 42. This is a psalm of despair, a psalm of lament, a psalm of discouragement. And I know those, that popular contemporary Christian song turned it into something it's not, uh, but, but this is a sad psalm. This is a song, as you'll see, of preaching the gospel to yourself. Psalm 42, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before Him? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, Hey, where's your God at? We see in verses 1 through 3, this, 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 this psalmist is is in a dark hole. Thirsty, hungering, starving. Tears, he says, have been my food day and night. Oh, the burden is upon his back, is it not? He's being taunted. Where, where's your God at? This is like Job's friends, right? Where's God? Where'd he go? Where's your God at? Look at your life, your circumstances. I mean, clearly, God isn't blessing you. you. You must have done something wrong. There must be something about you. Notice what he does. He begins to preach the gospel to himself. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He preaches a gospel to himself. I, I, I find my hope in the Lord, not in my circumstances, not in my, in my abilities. I will praise him again. I will. This will happen. He's, this is a... A prayer of faith, I'm going to have, this is going to be true of me. 
We preach the gospel to ourselves by, by reminding ourselves that we need the gospel of Jesus Christ just as much as the lost. We need to be reminded that salvation is not by works, not by our own personal performance. We need to be reminded that God does not love us because we had a really good day today. That God doesn't love you because you read your Bible or because you showed up and turned into church today. God does not love you because you gave some money in the offering today. God does not love you. God's love is conditional. It is not unconditional. You need to be reminded of that. It's conditional not on your personal performance, but it's conditional upon the performance of another. You need to be reminded that God saves not because of your performance, but because His Son Jesus Christ performed. That all the ways you failed, all the ways you lost hope, all the ways that you cursed God, Jesus Christ was perfect. He obeyed. He not only obeyed perfectly, but He submitted to His Father's will to die the death He did not deserve so that you might be given life. John Newton, in a letter written on January 7, 1767, he writes this about preaching the Gospel to yourself. If the enemy surprises you and your heart smites you, do not stand astonished as if there were no help nor give way to sorrow as if there was no hope, nor attempt to heal yourself, but away, away immediately to the throne of grace, to the great physician, to the compassionate high priest, and tell him all. How do we guard ourselves from losing hope? How do we guard ourselves from losing faith? By reminding ourselves that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not by works, but by faith. By reminding ourselves that, that we will never, no never, measure up to God's perfect standard. We need to remind ourselves of Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no man, no human being. And if you're a human being this morning, that means you. No human being will be justified by works of the law. Friend, you need to be reminded of that. Brother and sister, you need to be reminded of that. The enemy will tempt you to believe that your personal performance merits God's love. No, His love is merited through the perfect righteousness of another. It is given to you by faith. And not by works. And so this morning, are you in a crisis of faith? Do you find the, the trials of life like waves crashing against your soul? Do these trials cause you great harm? Do you know a brother or sister in Christ who is drowning as David was in despair? Friend, preach the gospel. Preach it to others. Preach it to yourself. Preach it until Christ returns. I conclude with this from Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace. In this book, he exhorts Christians to preach the gospel to themselves. L listen as he articulates how you do that. To preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in His shed blood and righteousness. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God. That He is your propitiation and that God's holy wrath no longer is directed towards you. To preach the gospel to yourself, he says, you must face the value of the precious words of Romans 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. It means that you believe on the testimony of God, that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that you dwell upon the promise that God has removed your transgression from you as far as the east is from the west. 
That He has blotted out your transgression and remembered your sin no more. But it means, he writes, that you realize that all these wonderful promises of forgiveness are based upon the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And I add, not upon you. He goes on to say, it is the death of Christ through which He satisfies the justice of God and averts from us the wrath of God. That is the basis of all the promises of forgiveness. We must be careful, he says, that in preaching the gospel to ourselves, we do not preach a gospel without a cross. We must be careful that we do not rely on so-called unconditional love of God without realizing that His love can only flow to us as a result of Christ's atoning death. Brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you this morning is that you preach the gospel to yourself today, tomorrow, and for all of eternity until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, we come as sinners in need of grace. We, like David, have had many crises of faith. Many times we have sought to go through the wide gate, the easy road. It looks so good. It felt so right. But you have called us to the narrow way. The difficult way. You've called us to a life of pain and sorrow and discouragement. You've called us to a life where we face the enemy. And I trust this morning there are some here that are being crushed under the weight of their trials. I trust there are some here this morning that are ready to give up, to abandon the faith. I trust there are some this morning that are so prideful, so comfortable in this life that that all's good. Lord, awaken us to our sin. Call us to Yourself. Help us to preach the Gospel this week. To be reminded that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law. Help us, we pray, for your glory and our eternal good in Christ. Amen.